Well, today, as you all know, is Palm Sunday and we're taking a break from our Genesis series this morning. And uh, just let me just get set up here. Yep, and uh, before we begin, I'd like to just start our time in prayer. Lord, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that this morning we get to open your word and celebrate your triumphal entry into Jerusalem this morning. I pray that you would bless our time in scripture, that you would open our hearts to receive your word, and that you would just make the scriptures come alive this morning, Lord Jesus. Fill us with your spirit, we pray, in your name and for your glory. Amen. 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 Yeah, so like I said, this morning we're taking a break from our Genesis series. And as you'll know, today is Palm Sunday. And today is a special day. It's a day that we mark the beginning of, of Easter and in the biblical narrative. It's a time when the Gospels start talking about Jesus' last week of his human ministry before his death, his ascension and his resurrection, which we'll come to look at next Easter Sunday. Today is also a special day because we get to join Christians from across the world looking at and celebrating King Jesus and his triumphal entry into Jerusalem nearly 2,000, well, over 2,000 years ago. And as Christians, I think we get happy when we read this passage because it's one of the few passages in the Bible where we get to see Jesus exalted as king on earth. And with that said, what I want us to notice this morning is whether you are a Christian or not, the triumphal entry of, Je of Jesus into Jerusalem, into the lives of people, will always elicit a response. And by the end of today's sermon, I'm going to ask you one simple question. Having read the passage, having witnessed Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, how are you going to respond to King Jesus this morning? Today's passage is found in all four of the Gospels, but today we're going to be mainly reading from Matthew chapter 21 and from verse 1. And I'd like you to turn there in your Bibles, please. And as you do so, I thought it might be helpful if we get some of the context before we read the passage of course, we know this, uh, this passage, or today, as Palm Sunday, because of the events we're about to read. But for Jesus and his followers at the time, today would have been day 10 of the annual festival of Passover. Now, day 10 of Passover was the day that, by law, each Jewish family would present their paschal lambs to be set apart for the Passover meal, which was due to happen four days later. And it's no mistake that it was on this day that Jesus, who was to be sacrificed for the sins of mankind, was also to be publicly presented to those at the temple in Jerusalem. Of course, nobody but Jesus knew about the magnitude and the significance of this at the time. If they had known, I'm sure they would have probably tried to stop him from entering Jerusalem. As it was, they were quite literally chomping at the bit to present Jesus as their king and their Messiah. And here we catch up with them all as they gather on a dusty road in the village of Bethphage, a small village across the Kidron Valley overlooking Jerusalem. And I just want you to try and picture that scene of Jerusalem. Jerusalem would have been about 300 feet beneath them. 
and they would have seen thousands upon thousands of people making their pilgrimage towards Jerusalem. And we're reading from Matthew chapter 21 and from verse 1. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go into the village in front of you. Sorry, go into the village in front of you and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her and tie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say the Lord needs them and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet saying, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt the foal of a beast of burden. Here in our first section of this morning's passage and straight away, what I want you to notice is the interaction of Jesus to those around him. Verse two, two tells us that Jesus commands two of his disciples to go into the next village and bring him a donkey. And here I want you to notice a few important characteristics of who Jesus is and when we see those three characteristics, we're going to see that they're divine characteristics and the response that that will elicit from the disciples. And first of all, what I want us to see is that Jesus knows all things. Jesus knows all things. Jesus knew that there would be a donkey and a colt in the next village. Now, let's not forget all about what's going on at the moment. It's Passover. The entire region are making their annual pilgrimage to Jerusalem. The roads are jam-packed. Yet Jesus, in his knowledge of all things, knows every tiny detail. The theological term for this is called Jesus's omniscience. But simply, his omniscience is his infinite knowledge and understanding of all things past, present and future. That's the first Thing that we're going to notice about Jesus in this part of the passage. But the second thing is that I want you to notice is that Jesus has power over all things. He has power over all things. In verse three, after commanding his disciples to go into the village, he says that if anybody tries to stop you taking this donkey, you should say the Lord needs them and he will give them at once. I mean, that's pretty cool, isn't it? All the disciples have to do is repeat the words that Jesus says and they will give the donkey to the disciples. Notice the verse doesn't say that the person who owns the donkey will argue or will cause a fuss. But because of the power of Jesus's words, even when they were repeated through the disciples, it says that the man will send the donkey at once. Again, simply put, the power that Jesus possesses and the way in which he displays that power is called his omnipotence, his omnipotence. And then the third thing I want us to notice from this section is that Jesus is always in the right place at the right time. Verse four tells us that this took place to fulfill what was written in the scriptures by the prophet. And the prophet was Zechariah, and we read that in Zechariah 9.9, and we'll come on to that prophecy in a moment. But this small action orchestrated by Jesus and accomplished with the help of his disciples really kind of rounds off the trifecta of Jesus's divine qualities. We've already seen his omniscience, his knowledge of all things. 
We've seen his omnipotence, his power over all things. Well, now we see his omnipresence, his ability to fulfill Zechariah 9.9. You see, Jesus is always in the right place at the right time. And it's down to his divine omnipotence. Omnipotence is a divine quality that explains how God is everywhere present and is not limited to any location or physical space. If you believe that Jesus and the Father are one, then you'll have no trouble in believing that Jesus has the ability to be present in any time or space. So here we see Jesus for who he is. Within the context of the passage, it's clear Jesus is in total control. He knows what's about to happen. He has complete authority and he has complete power over this situation. And he's chosen this exact moment as they're about to enter Jerusalem to fulfill a prophecy that was written about him. Now, all of this elicits a response from the disciples. And now I want you to notice how the disciples are responding to Jesus's command to go into the next village. Because this isn't really your average request, is it? Go and bring me a donkey from the next village. Don't forget donkeys were highly valued at the time. People in ancient times valued donkeys as we would value cars. So imagine if somebody said to you, go into the next village, you're going to find a car in the next village. On its seat are some keys. I want you to take the keys. I want you to turn on the ignition. I want you to drive the car back to me. I mean, I think we would all be pretty surprised, probably might ask a couple of questions. In fact, we know the disciples were confused by this request from Jesus, because one of the other synoptic authors tells us that the disciples didn't understand what this meant at the time. They didn't understand how or why a donkey was relevant in this situation. Despite this, look at how the two disciples respond, and we're going to see two things. First of all, we're going to see their obedience. Verse 6 tells us that the disciples went and they did exactly as Jesus had directed them. Mark's account of this says in Mark chapter 11 and verse 4, and they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to him, what are you doing untying the colt? Imagine if you were caught hijacking a car. What would you have said? This is a pretty sticky situation that the disciples find themselves in. Caught red-handed borrowing a car for Jesus, well, a donkey for Jesus. There were very clear instructions in the law what would happen to people who stole a donkey. They could have made excuses. Perhaps they could have said, oh, that's your donkey. I thought it was my donkey. Or maybe they could have just returned to Jesus and said, uh, Jesus, actually, there, there wasn't a donkey in the next village. You were wrong. But there was a donkey, wasn't there? And they did go and take the donkey for Jesus. They were totally obedient to Jesus's instructions, just as Jesus knew they would be. They stuck to the words of Jesus. In Mark's account of the passage, it goes on to say in verse 6 that the disciples told the people what Jesus had said and the people let them go. And the disciples brought the colt to Jesus, threw their cloaks on it, and Jesus sat on the colt. The disciples trusted in the words of Jesus. 
Considering this display of Jesus's divinity in our lives in this section of the passage, what should our response to be to Jesus Christ as disciples of Jesus Christ? Well, Jesus was pretty clear in verse two. And if you have a look in verse two, Jesus says, go. He says, go into the next village. I wonder, can you think of another occasion in scripture where Jesus expressively tells his disciples to go? I think the occasion that, is, that springs to our minds is the Great Commission. And then in the Great Commission, um, which we find in Matthew 28 and verse 18, and actually I was wondering if you wouldn't mind turning to Matthew 28 and verse 18. It's a few pages ahead. Make sure you remember to keep a finger or a ribbon in the passage that we're in at the moment. Um, and I just would like us to read Matthew 28 and verse 18. You know, I would encourage anybody to mark up or underline if you're an underliner. Maybe you might want to do it when you get home later. But underline the three express commands of Jesus Christ in the Great Commission. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. I want you to underline the three commands of Jesus in the Great Commission. The first is to make disciples. The second is to baptize them. And the third command is to teach them. We're to make disciples, we're to baptize them, and we're to teach them. That's a, a, a command that Jesus gives us today as disciples of Jesus Christ. Now, as disciples of Jesus Christ, we might be thinking, well, that's a difficult commission. We couldn't possibly do all these things as a church. We don't have the right words to say. What if we're told to stop? What if some of us would lose our jobs doing this? What if some of us would encounter a world that hates us? You know, I think it's easy for us to make excuses sometimes. But what if today's passage has shown us, what has today's passage shown us? It's shown us that our response to Jesus should always be discipline and faithfulness. Why? Because of Jesus's divine qualities and who he is. He knows everything. He's in control of everything. And look at the next verse of the Great Commission. It says, behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus is in the right place at the right time and he's always with us. Jesus tells his disciples in Luke chapter 12 and verse 11, he says, And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Brothers and sisters, we have the word of God with us and the power of the Holy Spirit to go and make disciples of Jesus Christ. We should never lose sight of the Great Commission and our mission to go out and spread the gospel. It's in, our, it's in our vision as a church, isn't it? We make and grow disciples in Jesus Christ. Let's not forget that. Now we want us to turn back to Matthew 21 now and we're gonna continue from verse four. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet saying, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you humble and mounted on a donkey, 
on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They bought the donkey and the colt and put them on their cloaks and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the ground and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. We're just going to stop and pause there for a moment. Having fulfilled the prophecy of Zechariah 9.9, Jesus makes his way towards Jerusalem, the daughter of Zion. And suddenly the crowds of people who are making their way to Jerusalem are responding to the outworking of this prophetic fulfillment. As Jesus accepts the cult from the disciples and sits upon their cloaks, the crowds can recognise the significance of this moment. They begin to recognise Jesus as their Messiah and their King. Don't forget they followed him all the way from Galilee. They've witnessed his miracles. In response, perhaps taking lead from the disciples, they also start to spread their cloaks on the ground. And this was a common thing to do in the Old Testament times. Spreading your cloaks before a king was a sign of respect. It was a sign of submission and support for the king. But then the crowds go a step further. They start cutting tree branches down and they began to lay those in front of their Messiah giving in what we would call the red carpet treatment. Another synoptic gospel writer tells us that the tree branches were in fact palm branches, hence why we call this triumphal entry and call today Palm Sunday. But I just want you to recognise the context here. The crowds had just followed Jesus all the way from Galilee. It's likely that they had followed Jesus at great personal cost, probably leaving behind their entire personal livelihood. And yet they still offer the very cloaks off their back for King Jesus. To make a royal, they wanted to make a royal procession for Jesus. And Charles Spurgeon says at this moment, in every way it was a poor thing. No spangles of gold, no flaunting banners, no blowing of silver trumpets, no pomp, no state. It was poverty's own triumph. Poverty enthroned on poverty's own beast rides through the streets of Jerusalem. As Jesus gets closer to Jerusalem, picture this poor and humble procession. The broken, the lost, the hungry, the weary, all following a humble king mounted on a borrowed donkey. The procession is making its way towards the grandeur and the splendour of Jerusalem. As Jesus and the crowds would have entered the gates, 225 feet above them, about the height of Lincoln Cathedral, loomed the walls of the Temple Mount. On the mount was the temple itself, constructed of pure marble and gold. It was the height of a 15-storey building. And yet, the people of Jerusalem weren't captured by the magnificence of the buildings, they were fixed on the majesty of King Jesus. As his sure-footed donkey navigated the streets of Jerusalem, led by its donkey mother and a crowd of devotees, the crowds were singing Hosanna, Hosanna to the son of David. 
These words come from the traditional Hallel Psalms that would have been sung at the time. These were usually sang for Passover itself, but in this moment, they were reconstructed to praise King Jesus. We see in Psalm 118, the last of the Hallel Psalms to be sang in their liturgy, the words Hosanna literally means save us, save us. When applied to verse 9 of our text today, the meaning becomes clear. The crowds were saying to Jesus, save us, save us, we pray. Save us, son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Save us in the highest. When we sang our first worship song this morning, we sang the words Hosanna, didn't we? We sang Hosanna, Hosanna, you are the God who saves us. Worthy of all our praises, Hosanna, Hosanna, come and have your way among us. We welcome you here, Lord Jesus. You know, it's a, it's a sad thing, the cries of those who were in, in uh, Jerusalem at the time. They saw the majesty of King Jesus and they responded in misplaced celebration. They thought, as, as, uh, as Richard reminded us earlier, they thought that Jesus was saving them from Roman occupation. Yet when we sing Hosanna, we respond in a totally different way, don't we? We respond with the full revelation of what Jesus' kingship means to us. Because we know the very reason why Jesus entered Jerusalem in the first place. He was riding towards his betrayal. He was riding towards his crucifixion. And he was riding towards his own death. When we cry Hosanna, we do so not because we know, we do so, sorry, because we know that it's through Jesus' death that we are covered by the blood of his sacrifice and we're crying, save us, Lord. Just as the Jews celebrated Passover, when they painted their doorposts with the blood of the Paschal Lamb, and the wrath of God passed over their households, hence the name Passover, so God's wrath passes over us as Jesus Christ covered us with the blood of his sacrifice. And it's by his blood that we are saved. All we need to do to enter the kingdom of God and enter the kingdom of heaven is believe in Jesus Christ as our saviour and as our king. I love this poem by Kay Hoffman, a poem sent to me by a dear friend. And I think it really encapsulates what Palm Sunday is all about. They waved palm branches as he passed and hailed them as, his king, as their king. Yet they knew not of the sorrow the coming week would bring. The glad acclaim would soon give way to cheers and mockery. In Pilate's court, he'd be condemned to a cross and Calvary. But Jesus knew he was the price in God's redemptive plan. The sacrificial lamb come down to die for sins of man. The centuries have passed and still he seeks those lost in sin, pleading with unyielding hearts to repent and follow him. On this day we shout our praise, oh let us not delay, the palm strewn path of long ago still leads to him today. Are you like those in the crowds this morning? Did you sing Hosanna, not quite knowing the significance of what it was that you were singing? Well, I'm here to tell you that those words, save us, Hosanna, save us, 
should really mean something to you today. Because everyone in this room, everyone on this earth, needs saving from their sin. In light of Jesus Christ's entry into your life as the king, you're faced with a decision. Do you repent and accept Jesus Christ as your saviour? In return, seeking forgiveness for your sins and eternal life with him in heaven? Or do you reject Jesus Christ and spend eternal life in hell away from him? If you feel stirred by this decision, if this gospel presentation of King Jesus has stirred something within you this morning, then you're not alone. Just look at the people of Jerusalem, how they received King Jesus as he presented to himself, to them, 2,000 years ago. And we're reading now from the last of our passage. We're reading from Matthew uh, 21 and verse 11. No, verse 10. When he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. The triumphal entry of King Jesus into the lives of people will always elicit a response. He always causes a stir. This isn't the first time that Jesus has caused a stir in Jerusalem. Just think back to his birth. When the wise men entered Jerusalem looking for, King, for baby King Jesus, the whole of Jerusalem, we're told in Mark, the whole of Jerusalem, Herod, the scribes, the priests, everybody was troubled. Back then when Jesus was but a, but, but a toddler, King Herod tried to kill every single child under two in Bethlehem in horrific response, just in the hope of killing King Jesus. Fast forward to this moment, and the same thing happens. The whole of Jerusalem is stirred by Jesus' arrival. And again, those in Jerusalem will try and be successful in killing King Jesus. Who is this, the crowds ask. I don't think this question is asked in awe and wonder. Perhaps it was by some. But for the majority, for the chief priests, for the Pharisees, this question would have been asked in hot anger and indignation. In fact, we know this is the case because if you skip with me to verse 15 of, of our passage today, it says this. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? Do you hear what these young children are saying? It's as if they've missed this incredibly powerful moment where even the children recognize Jesus as the, as the son of David. And yet in their pride, they asked Jesus, who do you think you are? In Luke's account of this moment, the Pharisees say to Jesus, teacher, rebuke your disciples. Tell them to stop. But Jesus replies, if these were silent, the very rocks would cry out. Such is the power of King Jesus that even creation cries out at the sovereignty of his majesty. So we asked the question this morning, who is King Jesus? But I want you to notice when we ask that question, one very simple thing. 
Jesus never changed who he was. It might seem like a simple and a bit of a trivial point to make, but it really is a simple truth of it. Jesus presented himself exactly the same way to everybody who was there. And yet some thought he was a prophet, some thought he was a king, some thought he was a teacher, some exalted him, whilst others wanted him dead. Whatever their opinions of Jesus was, it didn't change who Jesus was. In this moment, he was the meek, humble, gentle and lowly King Jesus riding through Jerusalem on a borrowed donkey. You know, Jesus, through his word this morning, presents himself as the exact same King Jesus. Whether you accepted Jesus into your heart or not, your response doesn't change who he is. I'm sure we've all treated him differently in our own responses over the course of our lives. Some of us have accepted him the first time. Some of us scoffed when they first met King Jesus. Some of us became Christians as kids. Some of us fell away. How did you respond to King Jesus the first time he was presented to you? I remember when I wasn't a Christian and I was working at the University of Lincoln and on my lunch breaks, I would walk towards Boots to get my meal deal. Other meals are available. Other deals are available. <laughs> I'd walk to Boots to get my meal deal. And annoyingly, a street preacher had started to park himself on the high street just outside of Boots. You might know who I'm talking about. You might not. Anyway, how annoying, I thought. I tried my level best to ignore him every day. There's something about this man's message that just began to gnaw away at me more and more. And despite my best efforts, one day whilst eating my BLT, it would have been, curiosity got the better of me and I thought, you know, I'm going to listen to this man with the rest of the scoffers and the rest of the hecklers. And the man told us that we're all sinners that needed saving of our sins and that we all needed Jesus Christ. And everything within me, every fiber of my being was screaming back, I am not a sinner. <laughs> he then mentioned these things about Jesus and I can honestly say, I just felt hot anger. Who is this Jesus, I thought. Just like the crowds of Jerusalem, who is he? You know, King Jesus will always elicit a response. He forces us to consider who we are. At that time, the street, when the street uh, preacher faithfully preached the gospel, I was a blinded sinner. I'm still a sinner now, but I can say that my eyes are open. I'm no longer blind. And it wasn't until I made a total mess of my life a few years later I had no job, I couldn't afford meal deals anymore. <laughs> I was presented with King Jesus and his gospel again. But this time I had no more pride to give. I was the shell of a man. And you know, I thank God that in my brokenness, that he didn't give up on me. And I thank him for his patience. That despite my response of pride and anger when I was first presented with King Jesus, that he's always been a humble and patient king. His patience towards sinners 
really is boundless and limitless. Just think of the patience that he showed to his disciples when they showed a complete lack of faith at times and in total misunderstanding of who he was. Just think of his patience with the crowds as they pressed against him, singing Hosanna. Jesus knew their worship was totally misplaced, that they'd got it all wrong, yet still in his grace he accepted their worship. Wasn't he patient with the Pharisees as they say, rebuke your disciples? Wasn't he patient with Judas Iscariot as Judas betrayed him for 30 pieces of silver? Wasn't he patient during his trial when the same crowds who were crying Hosanna were now crying crucify him? Wasn't Jesus patient with Peter when Peter denied him three times at that trial? Wasn't Jesus patient as the Roman soldiers flogged him and pressed a crown of thorns into his head? Wasn't he patient when they whipped him until his skin was falling off and they spat into his wounds? Wasn't he patient when they drove nails into his hands and nailed him to a cross? What did Jesus say? He said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they are doing. Wasn't Jesus patient as the soldiers casted lots for his clothes? And the thief next to him was goading him, was scoffing at him, saying, aren't you the Messiah? Prove it by saving yourself and saving me too. Wasn't he patient upon his resurrection when he came back and he taught the disciples all that concerned himself in the scriptures? And with doubting Thomas, who refused to believe in his resurrection unless he could place a finger into the nail holes and to the spear wound in his side, And wasn't he patient with Paul, a man who would hunt and kill Christians for fun? Wasn't he patient when Jesus approached him and said, in quite a gentle way, Paul, why are you persecuting me? Each one of these people were presented with the same humble and patient King Jesus. Each person responded in their own unique way but it didn't change who Jesus was. He's a humble, gentle king who loves you. How will you respond to King Jesus this morning? Let's pray. Father God, Jesus, we do thank you for your sacrifice on the cross this morning. We do thank you, thank you that as you presented yourself to those in Jerusalem, in full knowledge of what it was that you were about to do, that you didn't stop, that you were patient the whole time. And that through your blood, the wrath of God passes over to those who would believe in Jesus Christ in faith. I thank you that you are a patient king, that you patiently wait for us to accept you as our Lord and Saviour. I pray for anyone this morning who doesn't yet know King Jesus.
as their king and their saviour. I pray that you would open their hearts, Lord, and that they would receive you this morning. And I pray for each of us as we consider this Easter week. I pray that you would draw closer to us this week as we consider all that you have done for us on the cross, that last week of your life. I pray that you would just remind us of sins which we need repenting from this week and that we would be able to lay them before the foot of the cross in the full knowledge that you have forgiven us of our sins and that through the trials of our sins and through the trials that we receive as Christians, we would just end up being thankful for our faith, which is like gold to us, and that we would just end up glorifying you this week. And so, Lord, I just pray that you would be with us and that you would keep us until we come again on Good Friday. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.